Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us as we continue our studies in the Gospel of Luke. We're having these family Bible studies trying to discover practical applications to your life and to life of your children from the Gospel of Luke. And the title of today's episode, kind of unique, it's Make Sure That Your Children Aren't Sadducees. And you think, well, what, what, what does that mean? Hang on. I need to back up, though. In our previous episode where I was talking about the importance of having a life purpose for a young person, and that the Barna Group, an early survey that they did, found that although many uh, things that greatly interest a, a teenager change between, say, like 13, 15, and 18 years old, the one thing that remains a constant is having a life goals and purpose. Now, right after I got done creating that episode for you, I get this article. I really wish I had it before we did that episode, but it was result of a survey in the United Kingdom, and they found that the more secular a society gets, the less teenagers find having a life purpose or life goals. Now, I think the United Kingdom is unfortunately further down the secular line than we are here in the United States. But we're trying to play catch up rather quickly. But listen to what's happening in the United Kingdom because it's a preview of the future. And particularly, I'm speaking to you parents who might have young children because by the time that they're teenagers, we may have, in fact, caught up. But here's the status in the United Kingdom. A poll revealed a staggering 89% of young people aged 18 to 29 in the United Kingdom feel that their lives are meaningless and without purpose. 89%. My life is meaningless and without purpose. No wonder the suicide rates are skyrocketing in that same age group. So I'm going to come back And the reason I'm repeating it is that I don't think people are getting this, but a critical section in the Catechism of the Catholic Church for parents and youth workers and pastors is section 282, which says, where do we come from? Where are we going? What is our origin and what is our end? Where does everything that exists come from and where is it going? These two questions, the first about the origin and the second about the end, are inseparable. They are decisive for the meaning and orientation of our life and actions. These are decisive. In other words, these are the biggies that create meaning and orientation in your life and direct your life, direct your actions, direct your morals. And remember that the Barna Group, I pointed this out, I'm pointing it out again, that having a worldview. Now, the Catechism says 
that having these two questions in mind about our origin and about the end are decisive for worldview, the meaning and orientation of our life and action. That's worldview. And Barna found that those who have a Christian worldview, Christian young people, are 31 times less likely to accept cohabitation. Now, I know a lot of my fellow radio, Catholic radio broadcasters, they would say, ah, it's theology of the body, books, and seminars. Now, I have nothing against theology of the body, books, and seminars, and I do think they're good, and I do think they're helpful, but not nearly as helpful as having a world view. And to have a world view, according to section 282 of the Catechism, it's decisive to have both where do we come from? And then the end. And today's broadcast, we're going to be talking about the end. And I am proposing, and you're going to have to find this out for yourself if you're a parent about your own family. And if you're a youth pastor, you're going to have to find out about the youth in your own parish. But here it is. There's a lot of fog, if not outright error, regarding Christian belief of our end, of where we're headed, what eternal life will be like. So I am offering today $1,000 in cash, 10 $100 bills that I will give to anyone who can show me through professional research that a theology of the body book or seminar can do equal to what a worldview could do for the moral behavior of young people, particularly the acceptance of cohabitation. It's 31 times less with a worldview. To have a worldview, you have to have the origin or the beginning and the end with clarity because they're decisive for the meaning and orientation of our life and actions. All right, here we go. Now, how does this all fit in with making sure that your children aren't Sadducees? Well, in Luke chapter 20 and verse 27, just one verse today, there came to him, that is Jesus, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. The Sadducees denied that there would be a bodily resurrection. Now, when we read the New Testament, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, we've been trying to tie what we read to our lives, because if it just stays as kind of nebulous religious facts, it's not going to have much of an impact on our lives. And the fact that the Sadducees were denying the resurrection isn't just ancient religious history, kind of a New Testament lesson. Hear this, the Sadducees were prominent leaders in Israel, and yet they missed a key fact about the end. They denied the resurrection. And in their ranks amongst the Sadducees, according to at least some reports I've read, were high priests and religious leaders denying a future resurrection. Now, You'd say, well, I'm glad that's just ancient history. It is an ancient history. I happen to know of a prominent minister of a mainline denomination right here in Greenville, South Carolina, who publicly, from the pulpit, denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus and hence the resurrection of the body for Christian believers. 
but there's actually something far more widespread than a few religious leaders missing it. There's a widespread disbelief in the resurrection. I'm guessing, just guessing, that about 70% of the children of the committed Catholics listening to this radio broadcast, 70% of your children don't have a clear view of the end, namely the resurrection of the body. They're maybe not going to deny it outright as the Sadducees, but their belief doesn't include a resurrection of the body. You think, how, how can this be? Well, here's some diagnostic questions. I've given these before, and I'm hoping you'll hear my voice, kind of the urgency that I'm trying to convey, and you'll actually ask yourself and ask your children, ask the youth worker working with your children these questions. One, where will faithful Christian believers spend eternity? That's an easy question. Where will faithful Christian believers spend eternity? Well, everybody knows that. It's somewhere up there. Now, I couldn't find a website with a list of uh, hymns that are heavenly hymns, the hymns about heaven. I found a Protestant one, and uh, I'll put equal footing here. I've heard off-center <laughs> off Catholic hymns, comments, um, homilies, as well as Protestant. But here's some Protestant hymn titles. The pearly gates will open. This I'm talking about where you spend eternity. I'll fly away. The sweet by and by. We're marching to Zion. When the roll is called up yonder. When we all get to heaven. Or here's some words from a hymn. I'm not discouraged. I'm heaven bound. I'm just a pilgrim in search of the city. I want a mansion, a harp, and a crown. Here's another hymn, some words from it. When our earthly house dissolves, there's a house not made with hands over there. For our spirit ready stands in the sweet and vernal lands over there. Over there? Up there? The by and by? Flying away? Here is the fact. Christians will not be spending eternity up there. No, that is not true. And yet most Christians, I would say, I shouldn't say most, by most I'm saying majority, and when I say 70% of the children of those listening to this broadcast will think they're spending eternity somewhere up there. Okay, you need to remember just two things. Catechism section 1025. Catechism section 1025. Very clear. Quote, to live in heaven is, quote, within quotes, to be with Christ, unquote. To live in heaven is to be with Christ. Now, where is Jesus? 
for eternity future? We don't know all the details, but you can certainly read the last two or three chapters of the book of Revelation, and he is dwelling on earth. He, The second coming, Jesus comes from up there to down here for all eternity, and our eternity will be with Christ here on a new earth, not up there in some mansion in the sky, cloud existence with harps and whatever else. Uh, This is the reality of a new earth. Now, it is true there is such a thing as an intermediate state. And not getting into the questions of purgatory, because I'm trying to keep this simple enough because the confusion reigns, okay? But the idea in the intermediate state, the soul can go to heaven if it's prepared for heaven. The soul. And the person dies, their body is buried, okay? It stays on earth. The soul, for a time and a time only, goes to heaven with Christ. But that's only a temporary arrangement. That's not the eternal arrangement, because at the second coming, the soul and the body are reunited. And the resurrection, when Christians talk about the resurrection, we are not talking about the resurrection of the soul. We're talking about the resurrection of the body. So here's what the catechism says, and by the way, I just stay with me. We've gone from Catechism 282 to Catechism 1025, and now we're at 997. In death, the separation of the soul from the body, the human body decays and the soul goes to meet God while awaiting its reunion. The reunion is the resurrection, the resurrection of the body, awaiting the reunion with its glorified body, okay? So, second question. First question is, where will Christian believers spend eternity? Not the intermediate state, but heaven for eternity comes to earth because heaven is where Christ is, and he'll be on earth for eternity future. Second question is to ask yourself, your children, your youth group, What will faithful Christians be like after the resurrection of the body? And this is where I have a bit of a beef that a lot of those teaching the theology of the body are not, because the most extensive teaching in the Bible regarding the theology of the body is found in the longest chapter in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, and it talks about the resurrection of the body and teaching children kind of the second step. And and I'm saying the theology of the body is great, but it has to be built on something, and that's St. Paul's theology of the body, of the bodily resurrection. And most young people today will tell you that, you know, you're you're up in heaven in a disembodied state. I'm talking about for eternity future, not any intermediate state. Eternity future is a disembodied existence in heaven, you know, with, you know, mansions in the sky and this type of thing. 
And this is an error. It's an error which arises from Greek philosophy, which taught that matter is evil and spirit is good. Well, the body has happens to be matter. And so the Greek philosophy overrode the clear teaching about the resurrection of the body. And 1 Corinthians happens to be a letter to Corinth, Greece. It's where the Greek philosophy and worldview was overriding the Hebrew teaching regarding the resurrection of the body. It's not a disembodied existence. And it's St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and there shouldn't be a parent out there who's not concerned with the moral behavior of teenagers and young adults in today's world. You know, I've just got off the phone the day before yesterday with a Catholic dad and, you know, so many kids raised right, sent to good college and everything else. Just leave it. And St. Paul says, In that chapter on his theology of the body, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. It's a pitiful thing to have a Christian belief without a resurrection of the body, not a resurrection of the soul for the intermediate state, but a resurrection of the body. He goes, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised, raised bodily? He goes, then, if not, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's get real for a moment. You're going to come and sing one of these horrible hymns to a 17-year-old or a 25-year-old, and they're going to think, boring, you know, um, ghost-like, disembodied existence up there without any tangible every anything other than kind of a, uh, a mansion. And by the way, that translation is grossly misunderstood, but that's not the topic today. They have to have a solid view of what happens in the end, because having that is one of the two questions, beginning and end, that are decisive for the whole orientation for our life purpose and meaning and actions. And the Catechism says this in section 996. Hear this. From the beginning, Christian faith in the resurrection, and remember, Christian faith in a resurrection is resurrection of the body, not soul. Resurrection of the body has met with incomprehension and opposition. On no point does the Christian faith encounter more opposition than on the resurrection of the body. You know, I didn't do a computer search, but my guess is in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, a big book, It only says once, on no point does the Christian faith encounter more opposition than this, the resurrection of the body. And what what is that miscomprehension? It is very commonly accepted that the life of the human person continues in a spiritual fashion after death. It's talking about the eternal state, the disembodied person. And N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, said this is what most Christians believe, and sadly, 
It's what most non-Christians assume Christians believe. We have done a horrible job of proclaiming the central hope of the gospel is the resurrection of the body. And the whole conception of the eternal state is off. And he goes, and to make the point as forcibly as I can, this belief, in other words, the bodiless existence in a heaven for eternity and a cloud-like heaven at that, this belief is simply not what the New Testament teaches. Now, let's get in a right frame of mind and recognize that the resurrection of the body opens a door of hope, expectation, and attraction, and life change that will basically color how we view our life now and our life to come. This is what N.T. Wright says. The purpose of this new body will be to rule wisely over God's new world. Forget those images about lounging around and playing harps. There will be work to do, and we shall relish doing it. All the skills and talents which we have put to God's service in this present life, the interest and likings which we gave up because they conflicted with our vocation will be enhanced and ennobled and given back to us to be exercised to his glory. This is what the resurrected life will be like. Think about it. Do you like singing and music? You will be doing singing and music the like of which you have never yet heard. Do you like putting your hands to work to make something? Do you like gardening without weeds and growing incredible fruit? You know, N.T. Wright says there's a hint in the New Testament. You know, what did Mary think Jesus was when he had just bodily rose from the dead. She thought he was the gardener. Now, she could have thought that because he was simply standing in a garden, but I care to think that he was actually working in a garden, kind of what the first Adam did, just like the second Adam. And what about nature lovers? Well, there's going to be rivers and mountains and streams and, uh, you know, a lot of people, even in this part of the world, because we've got some really beautiful mountains in Western Carolinas, uh, a lot of people have fallen in love with nature and forgotten the God of nature and kind of like, well, I'm not going to worship God because I am so in love with the outdoors. I'm spending my Sundays in the mountains. And not realizing you can connect with the God who made those mountains and it's going to even make more beautiful mountains that you're going to be enjoying for eternity. This is a new earth. This is not a cloud. This is not up there. This is not the sweet by and by. This is not pearly gates and all that other stuff. And we're, we're telling children, you know, be good so you can go up there. And they're thinking, hmm, hmm, I'm, I'm having a lot more fun down here than I will up there, so I'm going to live for today rather than tomorrow. And this is how your expectation of the end has that decisive influence 
on your life purpose, your orientation, actions, and morals. Now, anybody a animal lover? I realize some people don't like animals. I happen to like animals. Um, you know, about the end days, Jesus says, as was the days of Noah, so becoming the Son of Man. In other words, the flood and its coming judgment, uh, as well as the salvation that Noah experienced, were prefigurements of the second coming of Christ. And when Christ comes again, and that's actually one of the things you want your young people to understand, because the resurrection of the body takes place when Christ comes again. I've been to two Protestant funerals where the minister proclaimed the person in the casket has now been resurrected. If they were resurrected, what were we doing putting a casket in the ground? Because if they were resurrected, there would be nothing in the casket except an empty tuxedo or whatever. Do you understand this? The misconception of this is so widespread. But in any case, Noah's Ark got the animals with him. In other words, they got to the new world. God loves animals. He made animals. He made animals for us to enjoy and live with. And Isaiah chapter 65 says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. I can remember my mother used to want us to watch these nature shows, which were good to watch, but everybody was eating each other. It was kind of gross and violent. And says, But the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. In other words, the animal kingdom will revert to a condition like Eden before the fall. There'll be herbivores rather than carnivores, and there'll be peace among peoples. There'll be peace among the animals. There'll be prosperity. There will not be death. There will not be sickness. There will not be conflicts because life will be centered on Christ when that is. There's harmony within ourselves, within our relations. Uh, The generations of faithful believers in Jesus Christ will be alive. You'll be celebrating. You'll know them. You'll be living like this. So you see, there's more of real life in eternal life than there is in this life not less. And we're selling this so short. And if we recover the full voice of what the New Testament teaches regarding the eternal hope, as well as the catechism, our children will have a worldview and it'll make a huge difference in their life. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 266 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.